Welcome to the Corporate Innovation Podcast presented by Singularity University and in collaboration with Singularity U Nordic. My name is Chris Ostergaard. The purpose of this podcast is to go beyond the disrupt or die headlines, get concrete about all the abstract terminology behind innovation, and into the nitty-gritty of how to truly create transformation, growth, and impact by speaking to world-leading doers and thinkers who have a lot of innovation dirt under their nails. I hope the podcast provides value for you and hereby give you the next guest on the Corporate Innovation Podcast. So we're here on the Corporate Innovation Podcast, and uh, I'm speaking with Kenneth Bowles, who is a designer and futurist who has nearly two decades of experience advising companies such as Twitter, Samsung, Accenture, the BBC, etc. He's lectured on ethical innovation at Facebook, Stanford, Google. He's quoted by The Guardian, The Wall Street Journal, Wired. Uh, invited futurists for the UN and contributed to the BSI's Responsible Innovation Steering Group. He's also the author of Future Ethics and runs Responsible Design and Future Studio Now Next. And we're talking about how to design and innovate ethically for the future. But first off, Kenneth, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, very, good, very good to be here. Now, so before we sort of kick it off, uh, tell us a little bit about your own journey. What brought you from A to B to C to writing a book called Future Ethics? Mm, sure. Okay. So, um, yes, my background is in uh, design, in interaction design and digital product design. I've got about 20 years experience uh, of that across um Government, startup, dot coms. I was at Twitter for three years, heading up the UK design efforts there. Um, and it's actually only fairly recently, perhaps maybe in the last five or six years, that I've been focusing um, on ethical design and ethical technology. I always had an interest in ethics, I think, stemming back even through adolescence, I started reading about it, but I have no training. I have no background in this. I, I, I have a physics degree rather than a philosophy degree. Um, and so my journey toward you know, responsible technology was, was really just feeling my way, I suppose, and learning uh, by my own mistakes uh, in part. Um, I think sometimes people expect that there was one moment where I was filled with horror you know, that I've been in Silicon Valley and I said, you know, I can't do this anymore. It's it's uh, not a healthy place to be. And actually, there wasn't that moment of conversion for me. It was more maybe over the last yeah, few years, I'd started to become dissatisfied with the industry's um, lack of awareness of ethics mm. and the industry's unwillingness to take its ethical responsibilities seriously. And I had a hunch there was something important that we were missing at that point. Uh, and at that time, I was at, uh, this is now talking mostly about my time at Twitter. Um, <clears throat> and as you can imagine, the company had some very tricky ethical challenges mm. to grapple with. Some of those decisions, I think it got right. Some of those it got wrong. But starting to get involved in those conversations and starting to push for change made me realize there's something more we can do here. We have to uh, live up to those responsibilities in a more meaningful way. So after I left Twitter, I was lucky enough, I didn't have to rush into the next position. I could afford to take my time and say, what do I do next in my career? And I thought, you know what, it's now or never, this is the time. Um, you know, I have that flexibility that I can learn more about this and see what can I do to use the audience I'm lucky enough to have to try to convince them to take these issues seriously. And what can I do to translate between the worlds of ethics and the world of, of uh, the world of technology. Uh, so I just dove straight in. I just um, spent a lot of time in the British Library trying to learn how to read philosophy textbooks. <laughs> um, you know, I sort of joked that one of my um, pitches, one of my value propositions for my book was, I read Immanuel Kant, so you don't have to. So it was, you know, it was sort of trying to give myself that grounding and understand what this field was all about. Um, and after a little while, it, it became clear that I, the best format for this was going to be to write something. While I'm still you know, a working designer, I still have that audience. How can I translate some of the great work that's happening in ethical technology? How can I contextualize that in a way that industry will be able to understand and to be able to act upon? 
And so that took me a you know, good couple of years, published Future Ethics then in 2018. And ever since then, uh, luckily, there's a lot more appetite for these conversations now mm. in industry. And so I find myself um, being asked to consult around these issues, uh, you know, to speak, to train, and to come on wonderful podcasts such as, as yours. So um, yeah, I'm fortunate enough to be in that um, in that sort of intersection where I can speak both languages, I think. And that's that's something that um, I think we urgently need is a bit more literacy on both sides of this uh, of this ongoing debate. Yeah. And uh, and so let's dive into the topic of, of ethics. And uh, your book starts the very first sentence. And it's you didn't write it, I, I should say. It's in the foreword. <laughs> but I assume you had something to do with it getting actually in the book. And the first sentence in the book is, ethics has rightfully earned its reputation as a ridiculously boring topic. And, and and so obviously the first question is what drove you then to write a book? And of course you already talked a little bit about it, right? But what really what was at the core of really driving you to write a book about this so ridiculously boring topic? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, I mean, the ethics does have this reputation as being abstract, deeply philosophical. Um, elitist, you know, we think of it as dusty books in libraries, or you know, dead Greeks on the you know, on the steps of the of the temples, uh, preaching to them to the you know to the senate or whatever. Um, and I think that's a mistake. I think that's a real shame because you know, once I started opening my eyes to ethical conversations. And then I started just reading the news, for example, and I realized the majority of these news stories are really about ethics. Mm. You know, how should we, for example, right now, how should we vaccinate the general public against COVID? That is an ethical question. Whose lives do we value more? How do we place a value on human life? You know, how do we come out of lockdown in such a way that we balance those competing freedoms to go about our daily lives and to live um, free of free of illness? Um, and so it really put its hook in me that for me, ethics is, isn't this abstract philosophical concept. It's a, it's a pledge to take life seriously because these are you know, desperately serious times. And so we need that kind of, um, that kind of discussion. And I feel excited actually to have found a field that the more I learn about it, the more I want to learn about it. That's not always the case, mm. right? You know, sometimes you start to, um, you know, scrape the barrel a little bit dry, but I am I'm only just getting started in my learning journey. Um, I wanted to try and inspire other people with that concept that ethics is this vital and real and contemporary topic. And yes, okay, it has a rich pedigree going back centuries and millennia, but those ideas are absolutely relevant right now. And we will be fools not to um, learn from the history of ethics and then also its current practice. Yeah. And and we'll talk about solutions and we'll talk about ways of thinking about uh, problems that also uh, draw from from the pedigree as as you mentioned here and 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 some very concrete ways actually of also working uh, when you are when you're in technology when you're in you know uh, innovation business development etc. But maybe first a, a, a few definitions as such, uh, I mean, how would you define ethics and the purpose of ethics? Well, that is a question that philosophers have argued about for a long time. And yeah. you know, I, to lay my cards on the table, I'm not a proper philosopher. I'm not a real ethicist. I'm just someone who's you know done done some reading and done some work in the space. For me, ethics is it's the study of right and wrong, and um, and then it's also the kind of the practice of how we establish what is uh, right and wrong. Um, you could say it's the science of ought. I've heard that. What ought we to do? And that's the kind of ethics I'm interested in. You know, we'd call it applied ethics or maybe normative ethics. It's about what do we actually need to be doing differently? I'm not interested in these kind of meta-ethics conversations about what does it mean to say something virtuous. Like that, that's, that's too abstract for me. I'm all about what do we need to do now? Because the challenges of the world are so enormous, so vast, we've got to start getting those, um, you know, those, those answers right. 
I suppose. So that's that's what ethics means for me, figuring out what should we collectively do next or what should I individually do next. And this is where it gets very interesting when you start to link it with futures thinking and foresight, which is also about what is likely to happen next, what are the future worlds that might happen. And the intersection of those is fascinating to me. What's what potential future states could come about, how can we help to achieve them, but also who do they benefit, who do they harm, how do we try to make sure that they're as positive in aggregate as, as they can be. And so that's where I do most of my, my work, sort of looking at the ethics of emerging technology, the, the ethics of um, you know, the future, I suppose. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's all about that leaning to practical choice about where we go next, which strategies we follow and which uh, potential harms we try to mitigate out of our decisions and our systems. Yeah. And and one of the problems, of course, if you like, is that most of the time when when we talk about ethics, it's, you know, it's very complicated, right? It's very hard to to get to a, a sort of a definitive answer of, yes, it should be A or it should be B or we should take a right turn or, or we shouldn't take a right turn. And at some point in a place in the, your book, you write that it is it, not, it, it, so it, it's lenses to through which to see the world. And and elsewhere, I heard David Deutsch discuss ethics as, you know, not so much as um, rules or as it, as they are critiques of the world, as so ways to sort of try and look upon the world. And we'll talk about different sort of, ethical or moral philosophical um, ways of looking at the world in a, in a little bit uh, as well. That is uh, less about whether you should go with one or the other direction, but really as they are tools you can use to have, you know, informed conversations in the process, which I believe you also uh, discuss in the book at some point. Right. I you know, as a as a designer, I'm kind of partial to see a lot of things through the lens of design. But I do think there are similarities between ethical problems and design problems. When you're designing something, there may well be several responses or several solutions that work. Some of those might be better than others. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of creativity and, um, um, you know, even flair can go into those those kinds of uh, solutions. There are also thousands, if not millions, of design outcomes you could create that are plain wrong. And I think there's something very interesting here that I, I want to mention. I think some people have a misconception that ethics is purely subjective. That, well, I think this is okay. You think it's not okay. We'll agree to disagree. And, you know, we're not really going to make any any real headway. The truth is that we do have some fairly robust ways to argue through ethical conversations. Um, and there are, you know, there, there may well be several solutions that actually meet those criteria that we, we set ourselves and we say, you know what, these feel like good approaches, but there are also definitively wrong approaches. There are approaches that, you know, across pretty much all of humanity, we would say that contravenes what we think it is to be ethical and to be to be moral. Um, so my job is helping people navigate that kind of complexity and saying, okay, yeah, there is room for interpretation. There is room for opinion. And that means, you know, this is all about discourse and discussion and debate. And that's a really healthy part of it. But we also have to make decisions, and particularly in the corporate environment. Um, you know, ultimately, someone has to make a decision. Now, these technologies that we're surrounded with are going to get built regardless of whether we um, consciously uh, look at the morality of them. So we need to make sure then that the impacts that we have, or rather they will have ethical impacts, whether we design those ethical impacts or not. Maybe that's a more precise way to say it. So we should, it surely makes sense for us to take that seriously and say, well, Let's look at that as a responsibility of the design team, the project managers, the product managers, the engineers, um, and capitalize on those opportunities and to mitigate the risks that go with that. We can't just say there's this kind of deterministic perspective that, well, technology is just going to happen around us and we need to let it happen. You could argue that's what Silicon Valley has done to an extent for the last couple of decades. 
And I would say it's not got us into a very healthy place. So that's what I try to do. I try to frame it and say, here are some ways we can have that discussion where it isn't just based on opinions. There are rights and wrongs that we Mm. can start to tease out. But that is a complex and human and difficult conversation to have. So it's not easy for sure. Yeah. And and so there are maybe a couple of uh, interesting uh, topics to to cover in in regards to this also you you mentioned here determinism right technological determinism maybe you can just explain uh, in, in in brevity what what is that exactly sure yeah so technological determinism is essentially the idea that technology is sort of predestined and that it is if not the main shaping force on society it's a very significant shaping force um And you could argue that Silicon Valley tends to think this way quite a lot. You know, technologies, the next big thing is this, regardless of whether we actually make it happen or not. It, you know, sort of has a, um, you know, sort of predestiny in mind that it's going to happen. Um, And one of the problems with that is we can say, well, if it's going to happen, then there's nothing we can do to change the, the course of that or to design it differently. And so it dissuades people from talking about the social impacts of it. So that's one extreme. Mm. Um, the other extreme is to say, um, essentially being you know, completely the opposite and say, well, technology is totally neutral. It's just a tool. It's an instrument. Um, and everything's down to humans about how we shape that and who gets to use it and so on. And neither of those extremes is true. You know, as, as always with these things, it's somewhere in the middle. You'll find some people will believe, you know, will find themselves pulled more, more to one direction than the other. Um, but yeah, it's, you get some fairly, strong sort of ideological commitments, I suppose, that some people have to either of those extremes. And I guess you would even find people who hold both extremes, who believe that, you know, uh, technology is determined, but also that technology is neutral. You see this, again, actually in Silicon Valley, right? You know, we, we if you look at, say, the recruiting team within a large company, they might say, you know, come and change the world, right? This is something they always say, do you want to, do you want to, you know, leave a dent in the face of the universe, all that kind of good stuff. That's a very deterministic perspective, right? That this technology is going to transform everything. And then you look at the PR wing of that same company and bad things have happened because of the products and the services that they've released. And their defense is, Yeah, but we didn't mean that, right? That wasn't designed into our system. That's an unintended consequence of technology. You can't possibly blame us for it. So you have the same company essentially having a deterministic perspective in one team and then an instrumental perspective, an instrumentalist perspective in another part. So yes, there is a lot of, uh, frankly, sort of self-deception, I think, that we practice. Sometimes we bounce to whatever view is most convenient for us. The truth is, as I say, it's it's more of a blend. That it's um, mm. um, you know, technology is a way that we interact with the world around us, but it also shapes how we see the world around us. It becomes a medium by which we interact with the world, and so that kind of combines both uh, both approaches. Yeah, and and what we will talk more about also, of course, is ways to actually ensure that you have a bigger impact than you might even uh, think possible on what the outcomes then eventually will be, right? And uh, to the notion of technology is neutral. So I, I, I saw this clip very recently, and I mean, there are many examples, but but this was um, just very recent. So it's, it's sort of top of mind. And it was from one of the biggest companies in the world, Amazon, where the brand new CEO was interviewed. I don't know if you saw this clip, and he was talking about facial recognition software that they have sold uh, to the police, which of course is controversial and also many Amazonians have uh, argued against. And and uh, at, at some point in the discussion, he sort of argues, well, let's see if, you know, stuff comes up and then we'll deal with it, right? And um, and that, that really struck me from uh, arguably the most uh, powerful company in the world, the new CEO make, making uh, an argument like that struck me as you know, um, I don't know, careless. <laughs> I don't know what, what, what your opinion is, but but uh, but the whole notion of, uh, or maybe you could uh, unpack for us what you know. What are some of the potential problems lying in in sort of making a statement like that? Yeah, I, I'm with you. I think that's a very dangerous way to address your responsibilities. I think part of this comes from. Um, Things like lean startup, which have you know really taken hold 
particularly in, in Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. I remember early uh, in the days after the, uh, the Lean Startup book had been published, every company I spoke with thought that they were unique in adopting lean startup methods. Of course, they all they all were doing it. It's become, again, an ideology more than anything else, rather than a set of methods. And this ideology is based on the idea that we live in a world of such change and such flux that we can't possibly predict what's going to happen. So you have to have an empirical stance. It's like, you know, try and take the scientific method and apply that to building technologies. And so the Lean Startup, for example, tells us that the way you do that is you start small and you work incrementally and iteratively. You build, measure, learn, build, measure, learn, and Mm. so on. And I can see a lot of advantages to that, but it's exactly the same mentality as this this phrase that's haunted the industry now of move fast and break things. It's exactly the same concept that instead of trying to plan in advance to uh, recognize those issues and design them out of your system, you won't possibly know what they are. So build something, ship it, and then take on board that feedback and then you know improve. Of course, the problem with that is that works fine if what you're breaking is, you know, like a photo interface. It's a terrible idea if what you're breaking is uh, democracy. <laughs> you know, you can't put those pieces back together again. So there has to be some balance here. We need to recognize that technologies that we work on now, they're human scale technologies with just potential for huge economic, political, social, moral impacts. And we have to take time in our innovation processes to understand those potential impacts before they happen. We can't just push things out and say, well, we'll fix this broken democracy in version three, right? You know, this is not a, it's not a grown up way. Uh, to create that sort of change. Um, So some of my uh, work is trying to not necessarily push back against those mentalities, but say, look, I understand we we need to kind of iterate our way a little bit in the dark. It's true that there will be unintended uses of the things that we make, and that is one of the things that, um, uh, you know, we need to try to understand. Um, but that mean that doesn't mean that they're not foreseeable. We don't just wash our hands off those and say, "Hey, this is this isn't our problem." We look and we see what we what can we what can we do to try to reduce the number of harms that come from those unintended consequences by actively trying to seek out what they could be in advance and trying to design them out of the system. Yeah, and and there are tools for for doing that as well, right? Which uh, we can we can talk about in a little bit and. And uh, sort of the unintended consequences is one of the the big ethical uh, problems or multiple problems that may arise from any innovation, really, right? Regardless of whatever it is that, that you're doing, and uh, there are there are some other uh, topics here that you cover and that are in, you know um, are, are, are core to to anything that has to do with technology development and and, uh, and innovation, really. And um, a, a couple of them I would like to to talk a little bit more about. Um, you talk about hypernodging and uh, and also explainable AI in in regards to black boxes, right? Uh, the the notion and, and particularly with with deep learning that uh, well we don't actually know how it works, uh, but we get these great results and that might be that that might be good for a whole host of reasons, but it also has some significant ethical issues attached to it. Uh, maybe talk to us a little bit about that. Oh, for sure. Um, yeah, so this is a, a fairly rich um, topic of discussion right mm. now in the AI ethics space, particularly. What kind of right do you have for a system to have to explain itself to you? And, you know, as you, as you mentioned, this is a tricky question, particularly for deep learning systems, because, yes, it's not necessarily that we can't explain why they work, it's we can't explain the specific qualifiers, right? We can't point to this weighting and say, well, it's this particular weighting on this neuron um, or this node in the in the network that's caused this result. And so that means that we're creating systems that essentially don't behave in quite the way human thought does or the human lo- or human logic does. And that does pose significant challenges. Because what we're seeing, of course, is these systems are now starting to be used for some really quite fundamental uh, decisions. The Probably the most famous is the Compass crime prediction algorithm that ProPublica wrote about a couple of years ago. 
essentially a, a fairly black boxed AI system that was used to predict uh, recidivism, you know, risk of re-offending, and was found to be heavily uh, biased against uh, black offenders uh, compared to white offenders. And they basically said that the black people were much more likely to re-offend and were therefore higher risk. And so very likely that was then being carried forward into sentencing. So it was having huge impacts on people's freedoms. And so the you know the sort of interesting ethical question is, well, at some point, should we not use these systems? If they can't be explained, at some point do we say, well, we just can't use them. Now, I don't mind if we have a system I know, in a computer game that decides should this uh, I don't know, should this footballer take a shot on goal? There's a little AI, there's a tiny little algorithm behind the scenes. I don't need to know how that works. But if I've got an algorithm that's uh, assessing where I am in the vaccination queue or that's recommending me for parole or not, for example, if I'm if I'm uh, in prison, um, then yeah, I think we do have a, uh, I think it's a fundamental duty of a democracy to be able to justify decisions that are taken about people. Right now, those many of those systems cannot provide a kind of explanation. So I think there's a legitimate ethical case to say for some things that have significant impacts on personal freedom, we, we should be requiring by law that they are explainable. And if we can't do that with deep learning systems, then bluntly, we shouldn't be using deep learning systems for uh, decisions of that high uh, priority and, and high impact. Of course, the flip side is these are really good at taking mm. those decisions, so we lose some of that power. But maybe that's justified. Yeah. So, so the uh, the trade off might be that you actually develop inferior systems to what might be possible, and of course, there's a, a potential money uh, element to it, right? That you may not be able to make as much money or or, or, or gain market shares or, or whatever it is if you made that decision, which of course. Is um is a huge big <laughs> topic and an issue, right? To how I mean, how how can we how can we expect those types of decisions to be made? I'll tell you how I think they should be made, mm-hmm. and then I'll tell you how I think they are currently made. Right. <clears throat> to my mind, they should be made democratically. They should be made with the uh, knowledgeable insight of the public and of experts and of regulators and politicians and so on. Because if these decisions are about fundamental human freedoms, then they should involve you know, the foundations of humanity. They shouldn't just be in the hands of a few uh, you know, sort of enlightened technocrats. And that's unfortunately where we are right now, is these sorts of decisions are in the hands of software engineers, of product managers, sometimes of legal teams, sometimes of executives um, at major tech firms. And, you know, there's a lot spoken about the way that regulators are often behind the curve when it comes to new technologies, which is true to an extent. Um, And so that means that at the moment we are policing these systems ourselves. You know, I'm uh, I'm in the immensely privileged position that I, you know, some of the decisions I have taken have affected user bases of a couple of hundred of million, you know, a couple of hundred million people. Um, And I've wielded that enormous power pretty much unchecked. Mm. Okay, sure, I might be answerable to my line manager if there are repercussions that, you know, go wrong. But generally no one's a, no no one's elected me for that position. There hasn't been in in the history of my time in Silicon Valley, hasn't been a huge amount of public consultation. We haven't reached out to vulnerable groups to understand how they might be harmed by this decision. It's mostly just been left on my own recogn- recognizance and my own skill to say I reckon this is probably the right approach. Now, we're starting to see some companies tighten up and put in more formal processes. Facebook, for example, had this oversight board, which is uh, meeting very shortly to determine whether Trump should be readmitted to the platform. And all Mm. signs suggest that they will actually say that, yes, he will be, or that he should be. Um, And the oversight board has its flaws and it has a sort of checkered history, but it's it's good to see at least that there are some moves to say we need more robust ethical infrastructure, I would call it, that actually seeks the advice of experts, seeks the advice of the public in a more structured way. So I think that's the sort of direction that we need to head to get closer to those democratic decisions that we need. This episode is presented in partnership with Singularity University. If the future you've been planning for arrived today, would your organization be prepared? 
If your answer is anything other than a resounding yes, you might be in danger of falling behind your competition. In the race of innovation, your success depends on your ability to adapt and start thinking and acting exponentially. Singularity University can help you develop a future-focused mindset and toolset and connect you to a global community of changemakers just like you. Come explore the future of exponential technologies, learn how other organizations are adapting to change, and build a strategy that keeps your organization at the top of your game, no matter what the future brings. Take charge of your future. Visit su.org slash CIP to learn more. Mm. And, 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 and so maybe let's dive into looking at you know, uh, possible ways of uh, investigating what is right or wrong and, and, and which road to take here. And, um, and, and in your book, you, uh, as you mentioned in the beginning, also you, um, you, you draw upon, of course, rich history of philosophers discussing uh, what is the good life and what is right and wrong. And there are like three main uh, moral pathways, if you like, uh, which are deontology, utilitarianism and virtue ethics. And, um, and and maybe give us like the pixie version, the very short version here of uh, what the difference is between the three. And then we can talk about, you know, how to actually put them to good use uh, so so as to make right ethical decisions when it comes to innovation and technology and so on. Sure thing. So, yeah, the beginning, uh, let's start there. So deontology or duty ethics, as it's as it's sometimes known. This is one of the three main ethical lenses, if you like, or the, the main modern schools of ethical thought. And duty ethics is essentially based on the idea that there are rules of moral behavior. Um, and the right way to behave is in accordance with whatever those rules are. Now, it doesn't say what those rules are. That's kind of left as an exercise beyond to say, well, okay, where do those rules come from? How do we determine those? Um, so that's that's one approach. And you get um, some people saying, well, we have things like that in religion, for example. You could say the Ten Commandments in Christianity. That's a set of moral principles that we mm. should adhere to. And there are some people who live their lives according to those commandments. Not personally uh, how I do it, but um, you know, that's one way. Yeah. Um, the second uh uh, ethical lens you talk about there, utilitarianism, is based on what's best for the greatest number of people. Am I maximizing happiness for uh, the greatest number of people? Has a lot of appealing features to it in that it's you know it's very inclusive. You have to consider um, what uh, Henry Sidgwick calls the point of view of the universe when you're a utilitarian. I quite like that idea. You have to think about things from all sorts of people's perspectives. The downside is you have this potential for the tyranny of the majority. Like if ninety-nine percent of people want to do something, um, then you're probably going to have to do that thing. But according to utilitarianism, even if it's something like murder um, or you know exiling someone without trial or you know something that a duty ethicist would say, well, hang on, I'm not sure about that. And then this third school of virtue ethics isn't about following rules, and it's not really about the outcomes either. It's more about the moral character of the individual. What does this say about the type of person I am? What are the values and the virtues that I want to live by? And am I actually showing that through the decisions that I take? So it basically says it, it can seem almost circular, but it says that you know the, the, the moral thing to do is whatever a virtuous person would do. And so you have to talk about what are the virtues, the values that matter to me, and then how do I actually display those in practice? So each of those models are, you know, they're an interesting way to look at it, and they're all incomplete in their own way. They're all flawed. They're all strong in some ways and weaker in others. And so having knowledge of those lenses is a way to stimulate that conversation. It's not a, you can't just crank the handle and say, you know, utilitarianism says this is correct or this is incorrect. Um, but they are ways to shape that discussion, so you're not just arguing based on opinion. Yeah, and uh, uh, and 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 so uh, one of the things interesting in uh, under deontology, this is where your friend Kant also comes into the to the uh, to the story. Right, is, is is one thing he he says, which is powerful. I, I think is treating people as ends rather than means. 
and uh, and sort of to put that lens on on things i'm sure anybody listening here can easily come up with experiences uh, that don't necessarily have to do with uh, technology or not where that has certainly not been the case right so uh, and, and he talks about these universal rules uh, as you also mentioned and um, uh, w- one thing i love about uh, virtue ethics is the front page test right to uh, to check up whether you actually should do it or not would i want to see myself on the front page of whatever uh, magazine or newspaper uh, explaining that I that I just did this and uh, utilitarianism in a way is I, I guess very spreadsheety right uh, where you could <laughs> can put up uh, this is all the benefits and this is all the downsides and you know which c- comes out uh, better and I, I guess it, we we both live in in Western countries here I guess well uh, a lot of our societies are you know to a very large extent built on um, on on that way of thinking right but but the but the core in, in is that it's not about choosing one here. But it's about applying these ways of thinking or those different lenses to a problem that you have and then investigate what are then the potential outcomes, right? Exactly. So if you were to, you know, talk with an ethics professor or, you know, a professional ethicist, they would say these offer robust, defensible ways to argue through ethical problems. Mm. As I say, they won't give you an immaculate answer um, unless it's a fairly straightforward problem, in which case you probably know the answer already. But they will help you advance that conversation based on something, um, you know, meaningful. I mean, that front page test that you mentioned, it's also known as the sunlight test. You Mm. know, the idea being, uh, would this, would other people say that this was a moral thing to do if everyone knew about it. So if you shine sunlight on my action, if you publish it on the front page mm. of tomorrow's papers, what would everyone else say? Is this actually the behavior of a virtuous individual, you know, who's acting with compassion and generosity, for example, or is it, um, you know, someone who's doing something, frankly, they'd rather the world didn't know about? I, I, the example I keep coming back to, which is somewhat related to that idea is, I think it was the original Apple Mac had on the inside of the casing, had all the signatures of the team um, that had made that machine and they had it molded into the plastic. And you'd never see this unless you opened up the machine. Mm. But these were people who were so proud in what they'd done. They thought this was such good work that we'll sign our name to it at the most vulnerable point, right? When you're hating your machine because it's broken. And so you've lifted up the lid and you're trying to fix whatever's going on. And they're saying, we made this, right? They're owning up to the decisions they've taken. Now, it's not a moral question, but it's at least saying we are responsible. Here are the people you can blame. And here, you know, here is um, the result of our work. So that's the kind of uh, an example of that front page test or that sunlight test um, in action to an extent. And and so maybe if you were up for it, it would be interesting to to explore an ethical dilemma and uh, with with those three different lenses here. Now, one of the things, if you have a better example, I I encourage you to to name it. But one of the things that often comes up is the notion of using facial recognition uh, technology, right? And uh, so, for instance, in in public uh, spaces, right, that we see more and more of these cameras everywhere, and and there's this whole argument for and against. It's also obviously closely related to privacy, right? And so, whether it is ethical to do that or not looking with those three different lenses what would be your sort of way way to sort of analyze that i mean obviously you need you know in reality you need a lot more context yeah. you know, who is funding this what are the applications that facial recognition is going to serve um what right what sort of recourse do you have as a subject of this technology you know can you opt out can you have your information deleted and so on but let me let's run through yeah you know some of the questions that Mm. we might ask so if we're saying from a from a deontological perspective a duty ethics perspective um that that question that you mentioned then which comes originally from Immanuel Kant am I treating people as ends or as means essentially you could argue that facial recognition is using people as uh, means you know, it's using people as a way for me to get what I want. Let's say the case is um, police. Yeah, police facial recognition is certainly one of the more ethically challenging yeah. use cases. And it's quite widespread, actually, in the UK. I'm a football fan, and I've, I've been to several football matches where South Wales police have deployed facial recognition without my consent uh, to scan my to scan my face. 
so I'd be asking then, you know, what, um, how do I know whether I as a subject actually am being treated as ends or as means here? Is this being deployed in a way that respects my agency and my rights? You know, can I opt out of this? Am I uh, required to be notified that facial recognition is operating within a particular zone? Right now, for example, they do it out of vans, police vans that are marked specifically to say facial recognition units. So there is some warning that these technologies are being employed. But if I'm at a football match, I can't avoid it. Mm. You know, I can't, you know, I'm, I'm in the concourse. I can't, you know, I can't hide. Um, what is the safety objective? What, why are they trying to do this? Is it to prevent disorder? Is it to try to catch known criminals who are in the, they suspect to be in the crowd? Because that then will allow me to determine better well, what's the what's the objective of this and therefore how does that sort of implicate me, if you like. So those will be some of the questions I would ask from that perspective, yep. the ends or means. From the utilitarian perspective, I might ask, okay, well, how many people are affected? 3,000 people in a, in a Cardiff City away end. Okay, how much safety and happiness does that bring to everyone around in that football match? Okay, 50,000 people at the match, maybe half a million in the city surrounding, and so it's going to prevent disorder, maybe. Um, and then you weigh up those effects. And the original, one of the forefathers of utilitarianism, Jeremy Bentham, actually proposed uh, a calculus for this. He actually said, here are some equations that you can plug in the values. Now, you can't in reality do, do it, but you're still, you know, that's essentially what you're weighing up. How many people are disadvantaged by this or wronged in some way, but how many people benefit and to what extent? And is there an overwhelming interest that says, okay, it's it's fine to do something that's a bit harmful to these people because it's better for everyone else? So weighing up those relative weights. The virtue ethics question then would be, yes, what are the what are the characteristics that we would look for from a, a moral state and a moral police force? Um, should they, you know, is it better that they be strict? or lenient, or should they be just, or should they be effective? Because sometimes those are in opposition to each other. And that's why it's such an important democratic decision, because that shouldn't just be down to the police or even the politicians to decide. We, across our individual countries, should say what kind of policing we want uh, to support around us. And so those kind of questions will be, well, mm. is that being borne out by the way these technologies are being deployed? they're being deployed in secret, for example, then that's hardly policing with consent. That's the opposite uh, of consent, in fact. And most Western police forces have that idea of policing with consent. So um, those, you know, those are the kind of questions I'll be asking. Yeah. What are the nature, what are the, the characteristics of that police force that you're showing by deploying it in that way? Mm, yeah. And, and uh, a point here is, of course, that if whatever you are doing and most of our listeners they are you know business professionals in you know a variety of industries right they so they do whatever really right but but whatever it is that you're doing and you're part of a you know development phase uh, developing new products services offerings innovation r&d etc etc these are actual tools and asking these questions are actual tools to investigate, right? Whether we should do A, B or C and going through the motions at, at different stages of an innovation uh, project, for instance, to have these kinds of, of conversations, right? Yes, you. <clears throat> it's very helpful to use those kind of questions to essentially prioritize and say, okay, well, of the problems that we might face, which ones are the most severe? And you can use those to kind of prompt that question. And then how might we address them? Because some of those you won't be able to do anything about. Mm. And technologies have a, a, an interesting habit of kind of diffusing moral responsibility. Like, okay, I'm, um, well, let me give the example of Uber, for example. They had in 2018, I think it was, uh, an incident where one of their autonomous vehicles, their semi-autonomous vehicles, killed a pedestrian yeah. by the name of Elaine Hertzberg. Who was, who was at fault? Well, you could argue Uber were at fault. It was their software, after all. The pedestrian, unfortunately, was crossing um, 
outside of uh, designated crossings. So there was some argument that that she was at fault. There was a safety driver who uh, is actually, I believe, on trial. I don't know if if they've been convicted um, of not paying proper attention. This certainly bore some responsibility. But also the governor of Arizona had welcomed Uber and said, basically, we're going to um, not bother applying a bunch of safety regulation that our friends in California are so that we can get your business. So there's some blame there as well. Um, so these are these are good questions to help to figure out essentially what are my responsibilities and how can I uh, try to mitigate them. You also need to do some work beforehand, though, which is to get that list of what might go wrong. You need to do a bit of speculation, looking at future consequences, um, and also looking, broadening your perspective beyond just your business and your users to say, who else could this affect? So the example I always give here is Airbnb. It's a great service for users. It's a great service for renters. It's terrible for the rest of the city because it drives up rents. You know, if you live next door to an Airbnb, your life gets worse, right? You have a different neighbor every couple of weeks. They're probably going to make more noise. They're not going to spend their money locally. They'll spend it in the tourist traps. Um, But as far as Airbnb have been concerned until recently, they don't much care about that. So you have to take a broader perspective on who are the stakeholders I can affect. What are those potential implications and consequences that might fall upon them. And then I can use those questions to prioritize and say, which are our primary focus and what might be some uh, responses to that. So it's, it's, there is some relatively robust process that you can follow to tease those out. Yeah, for sure. And then prioritize and take action. Mm. And and that is really also painting, you know, uh, potential future scenarios, right? And, and and let's talk about that because there's actually a lot of very concrete tools to use in in any innovation or, or, or development phase. Now, so you mentioned stakeholders here, and you know, so society might be a stakeholder, future generations might be a stakeholder, right? Uh, you also mentioned going to the dark side, terrorists being stakeholders potentially. And uh, in order to mapping out different stakeholders and what the implications might be if you launch product or technology A, A B or C. Yeah, so there's, I could talk about this for a very long time, so I'll try to keep it brief. <laughs> um, so there's essentially two axes here. There is the axis, the axis of who are the people I consider within the scope of my interest, people who could be affected. And that's your direct and your indirect stakeholders. So you need to do some work to identify those groups. Um, And honestly, one way is simply to invite people in. Uh, Listen to people, particularly from underrepresented communities, because sadly, they are still the ones who are most commonly harmed by technology Mm -hmm. because they're not represented. Um, the number of times I've been in a meeting where, um, you know, the entire team says, yeah, I think we should do this. And then there's one person from a uh, different background says, well, hang on, do you realize that this by my community or for my family, we'd use it differently or it could be used against us in a way that you haven't thought about. Um, so it's about broadening who you consider your responsibility. And yes, as part of that, you might say we would have... Um, Uh, you know, potential abusers, hackers, trolls, um, for example, you know, even, you know, government actors within our system, how can we try to defend against them, you know, treat them as almost a, a persona non grata and say, I don't want them to achieve their goals with our system. So that's, that's the one axis is broadening your view of stakeholders. And then the second axis is, yes, figuring out what might happen as a result of their involvement in the system, what might happen to them or through them. And there's basically three ways you can tease that out. You can either have uh, a a category, existing categorization and say, okay, what are the privacy threats here? What are the disinformation threats here? What are the addiction threats and so on? That's a a very helpful way to do it. You can simply start from the beginning and say, well, what might happen and then what might happen next? And so you're in a kind of speculative first and second and third order Uh, imagining of of where things go. That can get pretty wild and woolly pretty quickly, but it certainly casts a wide net. And then the third way is you can look at analogy. You can say, well, other fields, this sort of thing has happened. Or you can say, I don't know, look at, say, the Gartner hype cycle and say, well, within five years, it's predicted that this technology will have reached maturity. What does maturity look like? How is that going to impact these various groups? So they're essentially those three methods to tease out 
what might happen to involve that wider net of uh, indirect stakeholders. Uh, and that gives you that large list that you can start to then work through in a more um, you know, uh, robust and mm. uh, uh, straightforward manner. And, and related here is uh, another tool I, I, I really like is the notion of slippery slope discussions. What is that? So slippery slopes, that is um, that is a, a, a common pitfall, I think, in ethical discussions. You'll find people relying on arguments that actually don't uh, don't hold up to analysis. So mm-hmm. the slippery slope fallacy basically says that um, if you allow one thing to happen, then it will inevitably cause a bunch of further knock-on effects that will then cross some moral line. And so we've heard this around, for example, um, gay marriage. Um, you know, obviously there's been uh, significant progress and changes of opinion on gay marriage, particularly in Europe, over the last decade or two. But some of the arguments against it have been this flawed, slippery slope argument. Oh, well, if you allow same-sex couples to marry, then what's to stop, um, you know, incestuous marriages, for example? Uh, and the answer is, well, the law. The law is what's there to stop mm. them. You know, you you just because you're moving the 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 criteria by one notch, it doesn't mean that you remove all criteria. You still prohibit certain um, uh, you know, certain outcomes. But it's a common objection. You often get people challenging um, things on ethical grounds using slippery slope arguments. So one of the ways, one of the reasons I discuss this in, in the book is to say, you're going to meet this kind of argument. Here's how you point out its flaws and here's how you can push against it. Because the answer with a slippery slope is you put in something pushing against the slope, right? You say, we're going this point, but no further. You'll put in a law or a policy or something like that to say the here and no further. Slippery slopes really aren't borne out by evidence. They're more of a rhetorical technique that you mm. need to learn to combat. Mm. And and what you also point to is the actual roles that uh, different team members, for instance, can can have, and they can be more or, or less formal. One is... You talk about employing product ethicists, design ethicists, as uh, opposed to a, um, a chief ethics officer, for instance. But also, you mentioned uh, something like a designer dissenter. So maybe talk a little bit to us about those both formal and, and informal roles and where you see real value. Sure. Um, yeah, there's been quite a lot of movement, um, again, the last couple of years, some Some of the larger companies have said, you know, we need to staff this up with full-time people. Some of them have uh, borrowed or poached uh, academic ethicists. Um, some have um, tried to have more of a kind of a ground-up approach. So, for example, Salesforce have a uh, chief ethical and humane use officer, Paula mm-hmm. Goldman. But within her team, she also has a number of uh, well-respected um, AI ethicists and product ethicists sort of leaning toward Actions so they're embedded within those teams, and I think that's really important because that's where those decisions are taken. I think a chief ethics officer could be too distanced from that. You need people actually in those, uh, you know, design sprints and in those, um, you know, scrum teams and everything like that, where those things actually get decided. Um, but you can also uh, start to tackle some of these issues without having permanent hires, right? I mean, it's. It's not realistic, particularly for a smaller company, to say, mm. well, first thing you do is you hire a Harvard philosopher. Um, and so the designated dissenter is a tool that um, uh, that anyone can use to start to have those discussions. And I was made aware of it in um, Eric Meyer and Sarah Wachtebecher's book, um, Design for Real Life. The idea of a designated dissenter is essentially role play, that within, say, a design critique Um, you will say one person, their job for this critique is to object, is to throw in these little grenades of defiance, to role play as someone who has some reason to object to this. And it could be something straightforward, you know, like a form that asks for your marital status. And you say, well, what if I'm divorced? Why are you bringing this up? I don't want to talk about this sort of stuff to you, you know. So it could be just challenging those assumptions or it mm. could be something much more foundational. But you ask someone to role play, to imagine ways that someone could object to this. And then, of course, you rotate that role, right? You don't want one person to always be the dissenter because we know what happens. You'll you'll find a way to ignore what they're saying. But it's, yeah, it's this idea of bringing those conversations into 
uh, everyday practice without having to bring in the philosopher. You know, bringing things from the ground up is, is a great way to start. Mm. Well, what are some organizations that you see uh, are doing really well or better than most in terms of applying a lot of these uh, ethical tools to design ethically for the future? Um, so I mentioned Salesforce. I think they've been one of the more prominent and sort of public-facing um, teams. They've they put out a lot of good research on this sort of stuff, and they've staffed it internally. Uh, Microsoft have an um, ethics and society team, um, which uh, again has created some good research, some good outputs, and I know um, you know holds a bit of power within that organization. Um, Google have certainly invested some time and energy in this sort of thing. They've also made numerous mistakes. Uh, they've had a couple of very public failings, such as they had the ATIAC, the Advanced Technology um, Ethical uh, Advisory Council, which was disbanded before it ever even met. That was a fairly public fiasco. Mm. More recently, there's been um, uh, big controversy over the um, departure of one of their most prominent AI ethicists, Um, and so there are question marks about whether they're actually living up to these kind of things uh, in practice. But um, it's mostly still the big companies that are that are taking a lead. We are seeing, um, as you would expect, some of the, um, the smaller companies, but those that have committed to um, you know social good as part of their raison d'être. They, they, they tend to be. Uh, quite literate in these conversations, you know, things like B Corps, um, you know, those those sorts of companies that mm. prioritize triple bottom line and things like that usually are quite advanced in these things. So Etsy, for example, um, nearly became a B Corp. They pushed, uh, they pretty much were all the way there and the board rejected the legal change required at the end. Mm. Um, I believe Kickstarter are a B Corp as yeah. well. So you have to have undergone some of those ethical processes uh, to achieve that certification. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's starting to happen, but it's, you know, this, this sort of change is slow. So it's still, it's still the, you know, the big heavily resourced companies that are the most visible at the moment, but I think it's starting to trickle through the sector. Yeah. So maybe we'll close off here. So if we look a little bit into the future, you, you said in the beginning, you, you're seeing, and you just mentioned, you're seeing accelerated awareness. I would completely concur with that. Uh, having also, you know, uh, explored this space for, let's say, the past five years or so uh, myself. Uh, awareness is growing, although it's still niche. Well, what do you think if we look five years into the future, just to to say a number, uh, ethics in, in business? What's the conversation then? I think the conversation will be driven by two things. One is operationalizing this stuff. A lot of companies now are saying, we have an aspiration, right? We're mm. going to make this kind of change. We're committed to it by this year. And then someone a bit further down the organization is told, okay, go do it. <laughs> and it's like, okay, but how? What do I need to do? Do I need to hire someone? Do I make some changes? Do we change processes? You know, what, what's involved? So the conversation is moving very much from why to how. So that will continue to be a big theme over the next five years. Um, and as companies, you know, start to skill up in that, they'll become more literate. And I, I really hope they will start to share more successes mm. because case studies are still uh, a bit of a weak point at the moment. It's yeah. hard to identify those right now. The other thing that I think is going to drive the conversation is much more ground up is talent risk. We're seeing a whole lot of tech workers now mobilizing around these issues mm. saying we're going to hold our employers to account. And CNBC, for example, have reported that Facebook's um, acceptance rate for college grads used to be around 90%. It's now about 50%. Um, and the theory goes that's because of the increasing toxicity of the Facebook brand. And so this is what's going to hurt companies as much as anything else, as much as regulation, as much as customer backlash, the talent backlash as well. Mm. So companies will start to ask questions about how do we tackle ethics so that we can uh, keep attracting and retaining the best talent out there. Now, there's a lot of stuff talking, you know, sweeping statements made about future generations, but it is clear that, um, you know, the Zoomer generation, for example, is more values driven, I think, than, you know, my generation, for mm. example. Uh, and so that's going to be a, a really important talking point. Uh, over the coming years. And I think that's going to drive change as much as anything else. Yeah. And uh, wonderful. So uh, Kenneth, 
Our time here is up, but if people want to look further into what you are up to, the work you're doing, where should we send them? Sure. So I'm I'm pretty easy to find online because of the spelling of my name. So if you just Google Kenneth, C-E-N-N-Y-D-D, you'll find pretty much everything. You'll find my company now next and my book, Future Ethics. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Corporate Innovation Podcast presented by Singularity University and in collaboration with Singularity U Nordic. If you liked what you heard, please spread the news, give a review or share a link with friends and colleagues. If you have comments, questions or suggestions for great guests on the podcast, don't hesitate to write me at chris at sunordic.org. That is chris with a K at sunordic.org and sign up to the newsletter on www.sunordic.org slash podcast. See you on the next episode. <laughs>